Over the years together, we have definitely been in some tricky passages. I remember times where we were trying to wade through the details of tabernacle furniture and cubits and colors in the book of Exodus. Not the easiest sections of scripture to work through and think about. And that was followed not long after that by the book of Leviticus. All sorts of very deep and gritty rituals and descriptions. Uh, the Numbers, the book of Numbers had uh, a series of censuses. And uh, you find that in our studies over the years, you come to passages where you think, all right, how should I approach this? And in the New Testament, uh, we've looked at the book of Revelation together in years past. All the imaginative and figurative language, trying to get a, a, a handle on and, and thinking about what these um, mean. And after going through all of those various passages, I have remained the preaching pastor here, which is quite wonderful. And I intend to preach next week as well. So we are coming to a text this morning in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, that has challenges to it. But it's not because there's apocalyptic imagery. It's not because these are details of colors and cubits and you think, how do I, how do I think about this and its relevance for the Christian life? When I come to a controversial passage... I want to be mindful of several questions. Number one, is this passage a matter of primary doctrine or gospel clarity? Okay, question number one, is this passage a matter of primary doctrine or gospel clarity? Number two, does this passage have a traditional or uniform interpretation throughout the history of the church? Number three, has this passage been used to demean others in the body of Christ? And number four, do any cultural ideas around us create challenges for understanding this passage? Now, if you come to a, a difficult passage of Scripture and ask those sorts of questions, you can see the importance of asking them for today's text. Think about that first question. Is the passage a matter of primary doctrine and gospel clarity? Well, if it is, then understanding the passage is actually important for what it means to be a Christian. If the passage is not a matter of primary doctrine or gospel clarity, then we do our best to interpret the passage, but we don't want to automatically label other views as heresy or question the salvation of those who hold to a different view. The passage this morning is not a matter of primary doctrine or gospel clarity. Question number two, does this passage have a traditional or uniform interpretation throughout the history of the church? If it doesn't, well then, in one sense, we lack some historical precedent that would have been nice to serve to guide us. But if the passage does have a traditional understanding throughout the church's history, then we should be very cautious about setting that aside. We should actually be suspicious of the notion that we've arrived at the understanding of a passage while centuries of historical interpretation have just gotten it wrong. So while the passage this morning is not about the primary doctrines of the faith, it does have traditional uniform understanding throughout the history of the church until about the 1960s. Question number three, has this passage been used to demean others in the body of Christ? Well, if it hasn't, then there's a lot less emotional connection to the passage or its interpretation. But if the passage in question has been used in ways that have demeaned others in the body of Christ, then the task of interpretation is complicated by the fact that we are human beings who feel certain ways about certain things. And you might think, okay, well, I'll just set aside my emotions when I look at this passage. But isn't that easier said than done? It's harder to actually do. 
And of course, the passage this morning has indeed been used to demean others in the body of Christ. Number four, do cultural ideas around us create challenges for understanding a passage? Well, if cultural ideas don't affect how people read the passage, then great. Fewer obstacles in the way. But if cultural ideas around us do affect the way people read passages, then acknowledging that fact is not only important, being able to identify those cultural ideas is crucial to resist distortions of the passage or unnecessary influences that conflate it. The passage this morning has been challenged by cultural ideas around us. So we must pursue its interpretation while deliberately identifying influences. And I want to speak about two broad categories known as complementarians and egalitarians. The two broad camps on the issue of roles of men and women are called complementarians and egalitarians. Broad brushing is always a bit risky because not all complementarians agree with all the extensions and applications of various principles and verses. And the same is true with egalitarians. But at the risk of making some broad comments, here we go. All right, I know you're ready. Here we go. Number one, complementarians. Complementarians believe that God has created men and women of equal dignity and worth. He has also given different but complementary roles for the home and for the church. Now, the main part in the term complementarian is that word complement. And you might hear that word and think, well, that's saying something nice about someone. It's giving them a compliment. But that word has an I after the L. That's not the word I mean. A compliment has an E after the L. And something that is a compliment comes alongside to fit with another to provide support and enhancement and betterment of the former thing. A complementarian believes that men and women in the church and in the home have equal value but complementary roles. Number two, egalitarians believe God has also created men and women of equal dignity and worth, but he has not assigned specific responsibilities for men and women in the church or in the home. For ministry in particular, egalitarians believe there's nothing uniquely reserved for men in the church but all church responsibilities and all leadership positions could be filled either by men or by women or by both. Now, I want you to hear a quote from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a statement of faith uh, voted on by the Southern Baptist Convention's messengers years ago. And this is the statement of faith adopted here at Cosmosdale Baptist Church. And Article 6 addresses the church. In Article 6, I quote, While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now that description there from Article 6 of the Baptist Faith and Message is an effort to distill what is believed to be taught in 1 Timothy and elsewhere. Specifically here at Cosmosdale Baptist Church, in addition to that statement of faith, the church bylaws have various sections of expounding and ex uh, expansion. And in Article 7 about church government, the Cosmosdale bylaws state that only qualified men can lead the church as elders and pastors. So we would say, of the two camps of understanding of roles of men and women in the church and the home, we would say that Cosmosdale is a complementarian church. We believe and teach God has made men and women of equal dignity and value and has endowed them with different yet complementary roles. And those different and complementary roles do not say anything negative about their status, worth, or essence as image bearers. 
We come to verses 8 to 15 in this paragraph then, where Paul is addressing the church specifically. And now, when we read a passage like this, we might have questions that come to mind that I won't answer today perhaps, but are part of next week's passage um, in verses 13 to 15. And so if there are lingering thoughts and questions, maybe those would be dealt with next week. It's also possible, though, that you will wonder about things this paragraph doesn't directly address. And so those particular things are simply outside the purview. You can't accomplish everything that you wish you could, addressing everything you wish you could address in even a few messages. But in verses 8 to 15, Paul is addressing men and women in the church. In verse 8, he addresses men and how they are to conduct themselves in the church without anger and without quarreling. In verses 9 to 15, he addresses women in the church, and we covered verses 8 through 10 last week. We notice together that important to Paul is the attitude of holiness and self-control for both men and women. Men should not be characterized by anger and quarreling. And the women should not be characterized by immodesty and the flaunting of their appearance. And one of the reasons we drew attention to those details in Paul's instructions is because in Ephesus, apparently there were some issues about what was going on with men with their attitudes and disruptive behavior. And likewise with the ladies in different ways. Paul's injunctions then are bringing moral and ethical behaviors to their minds so that they can rightly order themselves and live flourishing lives together in the church. Both men and women should act with an attitude of reverence for God and with love toward others. They should gather with a heart ready to serve others and to esteem others and to bless others and to dignify others rather than coming to draw attention to themselves. So there's some of the main applications and takeaways from verses 8 to 10. And then Paul continues addressing in verses 11 to 12, the women in the church. And we will see him in two parts here, talking about learning, the manner of learning in verse 11, and the prohibition about teaching and authority in verse 12. So the manner of learning, and then the prohibition about teaching and authority. After we look at these two verses... I'm going to answer a list of objections that I think are the most heard objections to the reading offered in these two verses, 11 and 12. So first, the outline of the manner of learning, and then uh, the prohibition about teaching and authority, followed by a series of objections to answer. Complementarians do not all agree about how to think about the applications and extensions of places like 1 Timothy 2 or principles found elsewhere. But my purpose this morning is not focusing on realms the text is not addressing. We are thinking about the order in the church, and that is the primary context of verses 11 and 12. The manner of learning. Let a woman learn quietly and with all, submissive, all submissiveness. And already with that verse, we have difficulty because it sounds on the face of it to many readers to be quite unkind. It can sound like Paul is saying to the ladies, will you just be quiet and sit there? And that is not what is meant. In verse 11, let a woman learn quietly is a posture or an attitude of learning and not simply some direct hushing or suppressing of voice. This is a command, so we want to take the seriousness of, here, of this here in view that's an imperative in the third person. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And could this be that in the Roman Empire, one of the issues in the Ephesian church, among the, the difficulties of attitudes and disruptive behavior, could it have been that some of the women were engaging in what Paul is now prohibiting? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
One writer puts it this way. Could Paul be trying to curb the tendencies of certain women to take their freedom in Christ and create disorder and difficulty in the gathered church? It could be the case. Now, this doesn't mean men should not worry about their demeanor of learning. It's not, again, a way of saying with women uh, in verse, uh, eight, uh, verses uh, 9 and 10 having the issue of immodesty dress, uh, addressed. It's not as if Paul addressing immodesty would let men uh, have uh, any old thoughts about the way that they are trying to draw attention to themselves. It does seem to address things he knows the Ephesian church must put into order, however. It's an injunction about what's happening. And there are two qualifications. It doesn't just say let a woman learn, but it says let a woman learn quietly. That's qualification number one. Let a woman learn with all submissiveness. That's qualification number two. And the learning quietly does not mean silence, stop talking, would you just sit there, quit saying things. One of the reasons we know this is because verse 11 has a context of other Pauline writings, like in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Corinthians 14, where we know women spoke in the gatherings of the church. We know that in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, they were praying and prophesying in public worship. So here's what Paul can't mean, that in the gatherings of the local church, that women say nothing. This instead focuses on an attitude. Let a woman learn quietly is about an attitude of focus and reception. It's the same word, actually, of verse 2. Do you notice earlier in the passage in the chapter, verse 2 says that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. Quiet lives is not silent lives. So if people say quietness here equals silence here, they're already on the wrong foot. They're already misunderstanding immediately what Paul is doing. Paul is not saying women be silent. He is not saying that. It's the same idea of living peaceably and with a demeanor that is about a teachable spirit of focus and reception. That's what the quiet life earlier in this very chapter was about. It's an attitude that's not full of rancor. Instead, it's an attitude characterized by peaceableness. In fact, one writer puts it this way. One complementarian says, it's an attitude of giving someone a hearing attentively. So you're listening. And and we recognize, first of all, that in a situation where there's instruction or learning taking place, well, how important is this attitude for anyone anyway, right? You're thinking about having to give an open hearing and receive what's going on. But then it says with the second qualification, not only that the woman should learn quietly, but also with all submissiveness. Submissiveness to whom or to what? Well, if instruction is being taught that it should be learned, then the first immediate thing we'd want to say is the woman would have submissiveness to the doctrinal instruction from the word. This is not all women submitting to all men. And some have feared that that's what this verse teaches. That is not what Paul's teaching. He's not saying, ladies, don't you say anything. And by the way, all women nurses to submit to all men. Both of those are not complementarian understandings of this passage. This attitude of focus and reception is characterized by a deference to the authority of Scripture and to the leadership of the instructors. 
Likely this idea of submit means to yield to an authority and not just to the word, but to the recognized doctrinal instructors for the biblical gathering. So she's learning from and submitting to the doctrinal instruction and instructors. Paul wants the women to have a teachable spirit. And I think that's the essence of this verse. So there are some wrong ways to take this. But as a complementarian reading, we could breathe quite easily to say, not only is Paul not saying to women, you need to be silent, or that you need to be a woman who submits to all men. Instead, he's saying, why don't you come and learn with a peaceable and teachable spirit with the rest of us? And so while some modern day readers read this passage with some caricatures or misunderstandings, they will not recognize how unconventional these words would have been in Paul's ancient world. Paul is calling women to learn alongside the men, and that was not trending in the Roman Empire. Let me explain what I mean here. As Phil Riken summarizes it, Paul shatters stereotypes, ancient ones. In the Roman world, women were considered intellectually second class. It was widely accepted that females were academically inferior. Thus, the educational system was designed primarily for men and not for women. And if possible, the Jewish rabbis were even more chauvinistic. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, and I quote, it would have been better for the words of the Torah to be burned than be entrusted to a woman. So in the ancient world, To say, let the women come and alongside the men learn and grow would have sounded quite strange. But Paul says, let them learn. And in the ancient world, that was breaking some stereotypes. So we would say, by application, ladies, God has called you to be avid learners of his word. Students of doctrine. And you are to study and reflect and grow and understand and internalize and process and be changed by the biblical truth. Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible is calling you to that posture. So I would encourage us that whenever we gather in the Lord's day under the instruction of the word of God, that we come with that teachable spirit ready to receive and grow in the knowledge of truth. Now that's verse 11. Wasn't that easy? All right. Verse 12, the prohibition about teaching and authority. This is harder. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, notice the end of this verse first. We would typically look at things as they come along in the sentence, right? But notice the end of the verse mentions quietness. It's the same notion that began verse 11. One of the reasons we're taking verses 11 and 12 as a unit is because they both begin and end with the same idea. A spirit of teachableness and openness to the doctrinal instruction in the gathered assembly. So when he ends verse 12 with saying she is to remain quiet, I'm convinced that the commentators are right who say Paul is contrasting some things. He's contrasting some things. In verse 11... The idea of let a woman learn quietly would be the opposite of teaching. Let a woman learn with all submissiveness would be the contrast of exercising authority. Verses 11 and 12 fit together very well and they're tightly put together by the end of verse 12. She is to remain quiet, which is to say she's to have 
that demeanor of peaceableness and lack of disruption and rancor in the hearing of the word. If we hear she is to be silent, then not only are we misunderstanding what Paul's meaning here in verses 11 and 12, we are not going to rightly understand what he means in other letters where women are clearly speaking and edifying the assembly of the saints. So in verse 12, what does this mean? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. First of all, he says, I do not permit. And this is Paul's way of describing instruction like elsewhere when such a kind of verb is used. Uh, Not an imperative form here, but a description of a kind of instruction that uh, he expects to be followed. And so in other words, obedience in the churches of Christ are not only to imperatives or commands he clearly gives, but also to the way he describes certain behavior he expects. Some have looked at this and and they see, I don't permit. They have tried to say that Paul is simply giving his own personal opinion here. He doesn't allow it. It's just Paul, though. So when he says, I don't permit, they should say, well, then that's Paul's problem. And, uh, and we shouldn't worry about this any further than that. But when you read this kind of construction of how he describes what he wants or doesn't want, what he desires or doesn't desire in his other letters, these are not opinions he's giving. It is another pattern, another kind or style of providing apostolic instruction to be followed. And so an imperative is not required here because we have other places in Paul's letters where such instruction is to be followed. But I do not permit a woman to teach. This idea of teaching is very much uh, something that Paul's preoccupied with in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. I want to focus especially on these last letters of Paul's life because 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were the final letters that he wrote before he was martyred in the Roman Empire. And he's very concerned in First and Second Timothy and Titus for the responsibility of sound doctrine that is being undermined and contradicted in the assemblies of the churches of Christ. And when he talks about teaching, teaching is a good thing with this word. He's talking about instruction or teaching, public doctrinal instruction, teaching gospel matters, teaching things that ought to be sound and rightly ordering and guiding the church. Some have looked at this And have implied, this would be an egalitarian impulse, for example, Paul is prohibiting teaching error. So that the inference would be, I don't permit a woman to teach error. Well, then he should make clear that he doesn't want men teaching it either. He shouldn't shouldn't just select a gender not teaching error. He should forbid it all across the board. But that's not what he does here, is it? Instead, he, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach And there have been some who have desired to read this as, I really think he's talking about false teaching, though. And he's just saying to the women, stop teaching error. And he's not telling them to stop teaching. Well, it is the case that false teaching is addressed in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And there are particular Greek words for teaching false doctrine or contrary to false doctrine. And phrases in the context that make that clear. But those words and those phrases are not in verse 12. And I don't think, therefore, it's a strong argument to say that we should imply they shouldn't teach error, but teaching is fine. He says, I don't permit a woman to teach. And so this seems to be, like the other parts in First and Second Timothy and Titus, about doctrinal instruction in the mixed gathering of the corporate church. So he, prohib- he is prohibiting, in a complementarian reading of this, and what I think to be the most defensible reading of the way the words flow and are used, that he wants qualified men teaching doctrinally in the gathered assembly, and that he is not permitting a woman to engage in that. 
Then we have a word, or, followed by to exercise authority over a man. The word man is the object of both teach and exercise authority. So let's, let's reword this. Not reword, but let's uh, put some other, uh, 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 let's put a man earlier in the sentence as well. I do not permit a woman to teach a man or to exercise authority over a man. So those verbal ideas are with regard to the gathered assembly where both men and women are present. I do not permit a woman to teach, and I've argued that that's a positive idea. But what about this idea of exercising authority? This, this is a difficult word because it's the only time it appears in the whole New Testament. And some people have said, well, then therefore, you know, is it just this word is in the eye of the beholder? That you can just take this to maybe mean exercise authority or abuse authority? Domineer And some egalitarian readings, or I shouldn't say some, but egalitarian readings would argue that. They would say Paul is prohibiting domineering authority. He's telling women don't teach false doctrine and don't be domineering. But he's not excluding them from teaching or from exercising authority. He's simply um, excluding domineering activity. And what we have in an advantage lexically about the actual words and use of the words is not this word occurring many times in the New Testament that can be studied. It's only the, the only occurrence is here in 1 Timothy 2.12. But there are plenty of occasions, dozens and dozens of occasions of this word outside the New Testament literature prior to the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the age of the Apostle Paul and in the centuries that are afterward. And so the good question for scholars is to say, well, how is this word typically used and in what contexts? And Henry Baldwin is an example of a scholar who's done a thorough study of this particular verb, analyzing its use in, uh, outside the New Testament in the years before Paul and in the centuries after Paul. And yes, in centuries after Paul, it could take on an uh, innate idea of domineering, controlling expressions of authority. However, in the years before Paul's ministry and contemporaneous with Paul, this word is used about exercising authority and does not carry the negative connotation of abusive, domineering behavior. So when Paul uses a word that isn't found elsewhere in the New Testament, but it is a word that precedes his ministry and is used by others contemporaneous with him, we don't have lexical evidence to say they would understand this negatively. Instead, it seems that Paul is reserving for qualified men in the corporate assembly the good doctrinal instruction and rightful exercise of authority. And he says, I do not permit a woman to have those things. Now, I want to make some observations about the or. That might seem strange. We've looked at some actual words here that are, seem much more significant. Why would the or matter at all? I know you're wondering. So the or is a conjunction that connects these two terms. And the or here is a particular Greek word that when used, a pattern of the use of this conjunction connect two words that are either both positive or both negative. There is not instances of this word connecting one word that was a good idea, one thing that was a bad idea. So here is, here is what I think the, the syntax of the original language. I know I'm getting technical here, but I think this verse is difficult for these kinds of reasons. The syntax of this word, or the syntax of this statement, 
seems to mean that both terms, teaching and exercising authority, must both either be negative ideas or they must both be positive ideas because of how this conjunction's pattern of use is across Greek literature. And I've argued that in the immediate context here, we do not see in the word for teaching and in the word exercising authority anything that would require a negative definition or a negative connotation. Instead, I think the way 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus use teaching and instruction, not only positive, unless in the context it is stated that it's false teaching, and that in this word exercising authority, that in Paul's day and prior to Paul's day, it does not carry a negative idea of domineeringness or controlling behavior, that we should not impart those ideas here. We should see here that in verse 12, he seems to be saying that in the gathering of the church, Biblically qualified men should teach and exercise authority. And that that is not something to be delegated to women. Now, we want to notice here, at the end of the verse, he says quietly in verse 12, right? We've talked about how in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly. And then ending verse 12, she is to remain quiet, is about that posture of internal receptivity and openness. So what is he contrasting here? Rather than teaching in the gathered assembly, the woman is to come alongside the other men and is to learn and with an open teachable demeanor. And rather than exercising authority, she's to come instead with a heart of submissiveness to the leaders of the church and the doctrinal instruction provided. And that is what verses 11 and 12 are meant to do. Now, we have to think about objections. Now, I've tried to mix in a few of those along the way, all right? So you might have noticed that uh, some, some things I've tried to raise in order to make stronger points uh, as we've moved. But let's make some objections out loud and answer them. Number one, are you saying women can't serve in ministry? No, that is not what complementarians are saying. Let's be clear. Women are vital to the ministry of churches, and that has been true throughout church history. Church ministry should not be narrowed to the office of elder or the function of teaching in the gathered church. There are all kinds of ministries. Women can evangelize, be missionaries. They can teach other women and children. They can manage finances. They can show hospitality toward visitors and their fellow church members. They can serve in music ministry. They can minister in nursing homes, in jail ministries. They can write. They can hold academic positions and teach. They can serve in neighborhood outreaches. They can minister to refugees. They can give rides to people who don't have cars. They can minister to the homeless. They can show care toward a church's rooms and facilities. They can coach sports teams. They can work on websites and sound equipment. Think about what is actually prohibited here in verse 12 and the openness and lengthy list and I only gave you a little smattering here of examples of what ministry can look like for our godly sisters so we immediately as complementarians reject the notion that verse Timothy 2 12 bars women from doing ministry that is nonsense think about the list of things I just uh, gave you number two why would Paul treat women as inferior to men The complementarian response is, he's not treating women as inferior to men. In fact, where Christianity began to flourish in the ancient world and beyond, Christianity dignifies women in an ancient world that demeaned women constantly. Rather, the gospel and the gathering of the church elevated the status of women in the ancient world. Complementarians distinguish between image bearers having equal worth and dignity and the different but complementary activities the Bible has assigned. 
Complementarians reject the idea that if God has appointed a particular activity or office, that that would imply inferiority with essence or value. Complementarians say, no, these are not the same thing. The assumption then, in that objection, why would Paul treat women inferior, is that Paul's being chauvinistic or sexist. To quote a man named A.T. Hansen, he says, Just as the first half of this chapter shows the author at his best, the second half seems to show him at his worst. Christians are under no obligation to accept his teaching on women. Okay, so let's just give you an instance there of, of someone who says, I'm reading what Paul says, and I don't think any, anybody who's a woman needs to care about anything he just said. But if we consider the context and what Paul's arguments are elsewhere as a pattern throughout his letters... We are seeing Paul elevate in his letters women in a world that was not eager to do that. So we reject the idea that Paul is treating women as inferior. Objection number three. Won't complementarianism foster abuse? This is an important question. We live in a world where in the last several years across various realms of society, all sorts of suspicions and red flags and stories of abuse have surfaced. And if you think about how widespread in the political and Hollywood realm these things exist... Those things were not as a result of their strong complementarian positions. Instead, what you have is abusive behavior, the direct result of sinful fleshly practices and not because of the logic of complementarianism. In fact, those who abuse women are acting contrary to complementarian teaching. Complementarian teaching values the dignity of, worth of, and protection of women. And abuse is not a logical outworking of that. We would say that those professing to be complementarian, engaging in the wrongful treatment of women, are failing to be complementarian in that very act. Number five. Four. Five? Four. (laughs) I think we're on four. Wasn't Paul's instruction limited only to the specific context of the Ephesian church? Well, I've argued that in verses 11 and 12, I don't see that that is clear, that only in Ephesus would these instructions be pertinent. Even if in Ephesus something is going on requiring these instructions, it is often the case that in the letters of Paul, something in an immediate context is going to require some kind of moral injunction and obedience that should be more broadly embraced in other circumstances. Uh, In other words, Paul... When you look at verses 13 and 14, doesn't seem to explain his instruction based on uh, circumstances or simply what's going on in Ephesus. Now, we haven't looked at verses 13 and following, but I'm going to try to show you next week that Paul's giving these instructions in light of a prior and pre-fall design of God's will for the flourishing of men and women rooted in creation. I'm going to try to make that case for you next week, but... um, I would reject the notion that Paul's instruction here is simply limited to a specific context in Ephesus. Another objection. Well, what about examples of people in the Old and New Testament who are women doing important things? Someone might raise a series, a list of people like this. What about Deborah in the book of Judges? What about Jesus having female followers? What about the fact that women first proclaimed Jesus' resurrection to the disciples? What about female co-workers in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts and in his letters? What about Phoebe called a servant of the church in Romans 16? Or Unia, known well known to the apostles in Romans 16, 7? What about Lydia in Acts 16 and Philippi? What about Priscilla instructing a man in Acts 18? My response to a list like that is to say, praise God 
for all of the different ways God has used women in ministry throughout the New and Old Testaments and in the history of the church. None of those things are about the gathered assembly of doctrinal instruction in any of those contexts. It's a category mistake. You can't look at those things and say, well, you know, women brought the news of Jesus' resurrection to the disciples. Praise God that they did. But that is not what's going on in 1 Timothy 2, is it? The same thing with Deborah as a judge or uh, the idea of these various co-workers in the missionary efforts of Paul. Complementarians affirm and rejoice in women being disciples and missionaries and all the acts that uh, the Old and New Testaments portray of the usefulness and the plan of God for our female sisters. That is not the same thing as 1 Timothy 2. It is not the same context. And so we want to avoid the category mistake, which is an error of reasoning, that would say because of this going on over here, then we can just transfer that to this thing going on over here. Another example of an objection. I'm not sure what number I'm on. This might be number six. Um, Doesn't Paul say in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there's neither male nor female, nor slave nor free, no Jew nor Greek, when all are one? Yes, he does. Praise the Lord. This is the same apostle, though, who wrote early these words in Galatians 3, later writing 1 Timothy 2. So you have to think about how he's not contradicting himself because oneness in Christ is true. Someone is not more justified if they're a Jew. They're not less justified if they're a Gentile. Someone's not more eternally secure if they're a man. They're not less secure if they're a woman. In Christ, we are all one together. And the mercy of God does not discriminate by gender and ethnicity and all the different breakdowns in the world. But you know what it doesn't erase? The reality of those ethnicities and the reality of those genders in the ancient world. So when Paul talks about our oneness in Christ in Galatians 3.28, that doesn't contradict what he says in 1 Timothy 2. Let's deal with a couple more examples. A couple more objections. Can't a woman teach men in the gathered church as long as she does so under the authority of the elders? This is an interesting question. Can't a woman, so in other words, she would not be... um, Uh, insubordinate, if you will, to the leaders of the church. Instead, she would be teaching with their permission. My response to this would be, okay, that's quite clever. Good try. But I think the problem with that is the elders of the church, the overseers of of the church, do not have permission to guide and allow anyone to violate what the word of God has said. So if the word of God says, here's how you must order your assembly, then we ought not follow the well-meaning elders they may be, well-meaning leaders who permit the violation of what is contrary to Scripture. Well, another example would be uh, as an objection. What if a woman is an incredibly gifted communicator and has godly character? And so we would say that her character, she fears the Lord and she is a gifted teacher. Okay, all of those things can be true and rightly used in a variety of spheres that I offered in the answer to question one. Those those ministries are broad and are not, church ministry that is, should be not narrowed to the function and office of someone who is leading and exercising authority in teaching. Praise God for female gifted communicators with God-fearing character. May the Lord use them. That doesn't contradict 1 Timothy 2, does it? It's a different thing. Lastly, what if a woman believes that God has called her to be a pastor? And her, her view here might say, I believe that God has called me to be a pastor because I have a desire to pursue the Lord. I want to grow in godly character. And I believe God's gifted me in teaching. Well, someone's subjective sense of their call 
should be guided by, and if necessary, corrected by the word of God if he has clearly spoken to an issue. So we would say to godly sisters who want to be a pastor, we would say God has gifted you, God has uh, equipped you, and in the ways that you can minister, you must not minister outside what he has said are reserved for biblically qualified men. And so we would say God has never called someone to live in violation of his word. That's what we would say. Now, when we read these commands, and by the way, there's a lot of objections that we could spend sermons, plural, trying to look at all kinds of different texts. I'm trying to offer responses that maybe an egalitarian view would say, well, what about this? And how are we to sort of process this? And when we read the commands of the Lord, when we read the prohibitions of the Lord, like verse 12, it's good to keep in mind a few truths that we'll close with this morning. Truth number one, that God is sovereign in his world and possesses total authority to command whatever he wills. And so, when we're looking at the subject of authority, the greatest authority in all the earth is divine authority, who reigns as God over all things. And if God decrees something, God is not ever wrong in prohibiting or exhorting. Number two, God is perfectly wise and good. So we can trust his commands. This follows on truth number one, doesn't it? God is not only sovereign in the world he's made, he's perfectly wise and good. So his commands are completely trustworthy. They come not from a heart of mixed motives and confused thinking and cultural relativism, but rather the goodness and wisdom of the perfect creator. Number three. God's commands are for our good. Not only is God good and sovereign in all he says, when God exhorts and guides with his word, his commands are for our good. He will not lead us astray. Everything he reveals about our design, everything he reveals about the function of his churches, everything he reveals about men and women, these teachings are for our good because God is good and holy, completely trustworthy. Number four. God's design for the complementarity of men and women is rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. Patterned across all the scriptures. Confirmed by many commands and prohibitions along the way. And even into the New Testament, the acknowledgement of God's design. We don't want to look at 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 and say, Well, if that verse wasn't in the Bible, you know, what, does the complementarian case just fall to pieces? No, far from it. Rather, the biblical presentation of God's will, of the complementarity of men and women, is across the two testaments. Number five, where Christianity flourishes in faithfulness, women are esteemed, dignified, protected. The fruit of sound doctrine is a blessing to our sisters in the Lord, and it positively affects women generally in society around us. Number six, however... We cannot expect everyone around us to always understand what the Bible teaches and why it teaches it. We must lean into the reality that following Christ and talking about what the Bible teaches will mean sometimes being misunderstood. Sometimes saying, well, oh my goodness, at Cosmos Dale, are you just a bunch of chauvinists? Like, is this what's happening here? Do you just think women are less than? That talking about what the Bible teaches will risk even being falsely accused of untrue things. Number seven, holding to biblical teachings in the present culture will require courage and perseverance. The cultural prevailing winds are against the kinds of arguments and uh, summaries of the verses I've presented today. 
Holding to biblical teachings will be in doing so with the greater history of the church, with its traditional and uniform understanding of these verses. So we say, with the Apostle Paul to our sisters, we say with Paul, come learn the scriptures with us. Follow Christ with us. Grow with us, sing with us, pray with us, rejoice with us, serve with us, persevere with us. Because there's one gospel. Not one gospel for women and one gospel for men. There's one gospel of one mediator between God and men, the same mediator between God and women. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us.